Hey everyone, this is Connie Morgan with the Free Black Thought Podcast. Before I formally introduce my fabulous guest, Rachel Ferguson, I need to apologize to both her and you, the audience. And this is just me being real with y'all. I do not sound my best on this episode. The reason I don't sound my best is because just before recording this episode, my family was traveling and I left my mic where I was staying. They had to mail it back to me. Doi! So instead of rescheduling with Rachel while I waited for them to mail back my mic, I recorded this episode without it. Obviously, as I'm recording this intro now, I have my mic, but you know, this is just your reminder that we are all very normal, regular people here at FPT, just doing our best. And when you become a paid subscriber to our Substack, you help us with things like buy Connie a travel podcast kit so she doesn't have to bring her desk mic whenever she leaves town. So please consider becoming a paid subscriber so we can keep getting better and better. Okay, now for our awesome guest. Rachel Ferguson is the director of the Free Enterprise Center at Concordia University, Chicago. She's an affiliate scholar of the Acton Institute and co-author of Black Liberation Through the Marketplace, Hope, Heartbreak, and the Promise of America. She completed her PhD in philosophy from St. Louis University in 2008. Rachel and I had a great conversation about Hume, Aristotelian values, Booker T versus Du Bois, the importance of the Black church, and many other good liberty nuggets. It was my pleasure to have a wicked smart thinker and just overall kind person and Dr. Rachel S. Ferguson on the show because remember, there is no such thing as the Black perspective, just Black people with perspectives. related topics. But first, for our audience, can you just sort of lay the foundation of Rachel? Where did you grow up? How did you grow up? And how did your career weave itself to where you are today? And I kind of your political, economic philosophy and how you approach problems that you you address in the book. Sure. Um, Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. Um, I would say, you know, something important to know about me is that I was raised by an evangelical pastor. Um, and so my background was um, the Jesus movement of the 1970s. And uh, that just meant that I lived in a very, very multi-ethnic, culturally interesting sort of household. My church was about a third Black Christians. There were many Jewish Christians, actually, in my church. That was a big emphasis. And uh, and then just plain old white Gentiles. And, uh, <laughs> and so, you know, I grew up... Um, Going down to Theodosia Avenue in St. Louis, one of the toughest streets every Thursday night, you know, picking up kids, doing doing basketball and Bible study. And I had foster brothers that lived with us for years at a time that grew up in the inner city. I had black foster brothers who lived that were right down the street, um, not from the inner city. And so as I joined the liberty movement as a young woman, probably really in college, through the influence of a brother of mine and just various people in my life. Um, I always had, in a sense, the um, plight, particularly of the Black American male, uh, kind of in the back of my mind. You know, both of my foster brothers were in and out of the criminal justice system for periods of their life and things like that. And so um, eventually I found my way into philosophy, I think due to just my intellectual abilities and logic and things like that. And uh, political philosophy, economic philosophy is what I was attracted to but always in the liberty tradition, thinking, when am I going to be able to think through um, America's history with Black Americans? 
And so what ended up happening, of course, is uh, the conflagration in Ferguson, which was very close to my house, uh, 10 minutes on one side, work 10 minutes on the other side of Ferguson after the killing of Mike Brown. You know, I started to support the entrepreneurs there, taking kids to the uh, African American History Museum in D.C., and started to come up with this lecture series, what about a classical liberal account of the systemic oppression of African-Americans? Because being in the liberty movement for 20 years, I knew about the minimum wage issue. You know, I knew about some of these counterintuitive things. And so I thought somebody needs to put this all together into one place, you know, classical liberal scholars, libertarian scholars, all have great insights on the history of race and discrimination in America, but nobody thinks of us. You know, we don't present ourselves as the place you go to talk about race and discrimination. And so that became my project, sort of put that together into one place with my co-author, Marcus Witcher, who, by the way, is a non-religious person, an agnostic and just a very libertarian historian, expert on conservatism. And so he and I, what we have in common is our classical liberal commitments. Uh, even though we have a lot of other things we disagree on, and uh, came together to write this book. And it it really has meant a lot to me to see sort of the fruit of my commitment to the liberty movement all my life coming out finally in that nagging question of uh, America's history with its Black population. How did you choose Marcus to be your your partner? I mean, you've, you've kind of said that, but there's many liberty-minded people out there. Why Marcus specifically? Yeah, the, the real reason was because Marcus is the student of David Beto. So anybody who knows uh, Beto, B-E-I-T-O, he's written on, uh, he, he wrote the book From uh, Mutual Aid to the Welfare State. He wrote a book on T.R.M. Howard, a great civil rights leader, uh, Black Republican. He's an interesting libertarian historian who has thought specifically about civil rights, Black Americans, but also women. Um, he's an expert on people like Rose Wilder Lane. And, and so Marcus has worked with him on much of that work. And so I wanted someone sort of in the Beto tradition, but uh, Beto was working on an excellent book that just came out on FDR. So he said, you should work with my student Marcus. And I'm so glad I did. Marcus is incredibly passionate. He did an amazing job uh, working with me on the book. So I'm just absolutely thrilled. Can you, um, I, I mean, you grew up in this kind of like multi-ethnic environment and I believe Marcus is, is a white guy, correct? Yeah, <laughs> two white people. Right. So what, how do you, do you, do you get a lot of pushback on that or do, or people don't care and people who are in the Liberty movement don't tend to be obsessed with racial stuff anyways, but what do you, what kind of comments do you get back? I mean, I've had, I've had some people ask me that question, like, do you get, a, I get that question more than I get the actual straightforward, like, why is a white person writing this book? Um, and so, you know, I have been asked, you know, why do you as a white woman, blah, 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 you know, and I, and I just say, because I'm a political philosopher, this is my job, you know, it's my job to think through how political philosophy and economic philosophy applies to current issues. And this is absolutely a a huge issue, obviously, right now is race relations in the United States. And so, you know, I'm just doing my job. I also think, obviously, the classical liberal movement leans white. And so it would, it would really help if the movement would engage, right, with racial issues so that it is a more welcoming place uh, for Black Americans. And the Black scholars that I'm good friends with have written on racial issues, but they don't want to just write about race. They have other things they're interested in. 
Um, I draw extensively in the book on the work of Anthony Bradley, who's a colleague of mine at the Acton Institute. But Anthony Bradley has moved on to talk about psychology and other things, even though he's talked about race and mass incarceration and issues like that in the past. And so I don't want to say, well, only Black classical liberals can write on this topic because then that's all that they get to work on, right? Because the burden is totally on them. And that's not really fair. And so I think it's really important um, for white scholars to participate in this conversation. That's fair too. And to some people who will say, you know, like white people need to do the work. Well, I'd say you're doing it. Exactly. And, you know, I think for me and for our audience, we don't care about, we care about good ideas, right? A good idea is a good idea no matter who's saying it, what color their skin is, but thought it was worth asking just, there's going to be a person out there who's curious about that. So, you know, your, your interests include Hume's classical liberalism. Can you break down what is that? What is Hume's classical liberalism? How do you define it? Yeah, so I wrote my dissertation on Hume's view of property rights and his uh, critiques of John Locke. And so it was important to me to bring that Scottish Enlightenment perspective into the understanding of property rights because it's more of a socially evolutionary perspective. Like if, if any of your listeners like the thinker F.A. Hayek, you'll understand the notion of sort of spontaneous order, right? The idea that over time, institutions build and through trial and error discover things that we wouldn't be able to just reason ourselves to. We need the generations of experience to get there. And what Hume does is he says, he kind of critiques the way that Locke justifies private property rights as a very sort of, um, what do you want to say, in a very rationalist kind of way. And he says, well, actually what you have is these relations that start in the family. And then there's a kind of proto-justice, right? Within the family where we share, we trade off or something like that. And then we extend that to our neighbors and we realize that if we respect them and they respect us, we can get things done together, right? And then as we expand beyond the village, we start to get, you know, the real institutions of rights and courts and contracts and so forth. And so he gives a really nice story of how this can evolve over time in such a way that you can adjust to cultural specifics. And that's sort of the weakness, I think, of a more Lockean approach to property rights, um, which have these sort of thick lines around them. But by looking at it in a socially evolutionary way, you can understand how property rights can be slightly different in different circumstances, you know, depending on changes in technology. Um, You know, in Scotland, you can walk across people's land because there's an old tradition of being able to do that. You can't stay there, but you can walk across it, right? And so that fit something that was going on in their history. And so Hume allows us to understand how property rights can be shaped by various historical and social circumstances. And that helps us to understand things like public accommodation, right? If you look at the history of common law, you see that that's part of the property tradition in common law, is that if you are someone serving the public, you you serve anybody in the public. And that's actually not some huge violation of property rights. That is the tradition of property rights. And so there was nothing about that part of the 1964 Civil Rights Act that we need to find troubling. But you have those who are saying, oh, you know, you're making people do something they don't want to do with their private property. And I'm thinking, this goes back hundreds of years, guys. This is nothing new. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Okay. And I'm I'm still 
laying the, the Rachel foundation a little bit before we get into the specific specific questions of the book, because you also have on your website that another one of your interests is the Aristotelian virtue theory. So I'd like you to expound upon that and explain that a little bit too. Yeah. So uh, when it comes to ethics, I'm an Aristotelian in many ways, uh, although I also love Thomas Aquinas and natural law theory. And I, I like the synthesizers, you know, the people who can bring out the good aspects of each theory. I think that uh, Aristotle was really right that human beings are bodies. It's very important that we are embodied beings. We are not floating brains. We're not some wispy thing we call a soul. We are souls and bodies, and that's both part of what it is to be human. Um, and so what does that mean? That means we are creatures of habit. And so much of what it is to be good has to do with the habits that we cultivate. Uh, those can be at a social level or a personal level, uh, either one. And that's really important because um, the modern or contemporary approach to ethics tends to be highly rationalistic. Like we're focused just on super edge cases. You know, what do we do about um, euthanasia, right? Or, or maybe in this space, reparations or something. Well, those are interesting questions and we can talk about those. But how do you live every day is actually the key to being the sort of person who will know what to do when, when an issue like euthanasia arises. You have to be a person who is wise, right? And who has good habits. And so virtue or excellence is something that has to be cultivated every day. And we talk too much about edge things. You know, what do we say about animal rights? Or what do we say, right? We talk so much about those and almost ignore what it is to just be a human on a Monday, right? And how do I behave today such that I'm the kind of person who knows how to handle really difficult questions, you know, on the edge. Uh, but most of us, many of us may never ever be in a position to even make one of those edgy decisions, but we have to be good parents and be good husbands and wives and good employees or employers, right? And that's, that's really the stuff of life. And so I like how Aristotle deals with that. Yeah, yeah, and that's, I think about that frequently as a as a parent myself and like what is the goal what is my goal as a parent what am I trying to like leave with my kids what do I want and you're right it's I want them to have the ability to handle the problems and issues as they come but I don't necessarily need to throw every single scenario at them if I give them a good found a firm foundation they'll be able to handle whatever comes their way so I love that approach my final question before we get into specifics on the book is you have a interesting, it's, it's, I think it's a couple of years old, but the case for pro-black conservatism. Mm, yeah. I, I, when I talk to libertarians or people in the liberty movement, however, classical liberals, whatever, some do identify as conservative, some do not. Some say we should be completely separate. I'm in my own sort of party or my own lane as like a, a liberty focused person where conservatives, they dabble in liberty, but it's, you know, there's a Venn diagram, but it's not a full, you know, yeah. it's not a full overlapping circle. Ideally, do you think that people who are engaged in the liberty movement should be kind of like Ron or Rand Paul's where they're libertarians, but they are, you know, they, they have to, they have to be practical. And so they wear the, the Republican badge and they sort of march with the conservatives and they're not in the liberty, you know, they're not in the libertarian party. What do you think is the right approach for someone who's like, liberty movement, yes, where do I go? Do I just shout about being politically homeless or should I pick a side? Should I pick a team? Where can I get the most work done and make the most progress? 
Yeah, you know, I'm a philosopher, so now you're getting into real practical details. <laughs> um, but I often get this question. People will say, this is not new to me. People will read my book. They'll say, man, I'm really interested in classical liberals. How do you guys vote? <laughs> and I'm like, ooh, that's a tough one, right? Obviously, there are left libertarians, you know, who are much, uh, much more um, open, you know, on questions of how we can organize ourselves socially and things like that. I would say personally, I lean conservative, and I mean that in the old sense of the term. So if you think of someone like Edmund Burke, right, mm -hmm. we call Edmund Burke the great conservative. He's the one who criticized the French Revolution, and boy, was that prescient, right? Yes. That, that fell apart fast. And he saw what was happening there, which is that you can't just change everything about the way people live, because number one, there's something called human nature, and there's only so far you can push it, Right. And, and before people just can't live that way because it's not it's it doesn't accord with their nature, and uh, and number two, there's um, traditions. There's only so many traditions you can change just at once, right? People can't adjust to a total change, and so what you end up getting with revolution is actually it just fails, and then you end up getting tyranny, right? Which is what mm -hmm. the French saw. You know, they got Napoleon. And so, um, but what did Edmund Burke do? I mean, he actually went and fought for the rights of the Irish. He was Irish, so no surprise there. But he also fought for the rights of people in India, right? And he fought against a lot of the colonialism that he saw in England. And so he was such an interesting, uh, he's, he's an interesting kind of template for us, I think, as someone who understands the conservative point that human nature is real and change needs to happen at a doable pace. but. Mm -hmm. Reform is necessary, and we do want to move in the direction of liberty, right? That's the direction we want to push things in. And so as, philosophically, that's where I stand. In terms of how to deal with that practically, that gets into the details of what's actually going on on the ground. So I think if you look at the Libertarian Party, for instance, right now, it's an absolute mess. Mm -hmm. um, you know, the, the Mises Caucus, blah, 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 anybody who keeps up with that world knows that they totally blew themselves up. They had made a lot of progress at the local level. They had actually gotten a lot of people in place. They'd gotten ballot access. They had made a lot of progress and they just blew it up. And so at the moment, it's not a very uh, interesting route to take, I think. And so I understand the people who are trying to do libertarian work in other spaces. I probably do believe in sort of the fusionist idea that libertarians are always going to fit better with conservatives than they are on the left, uh, because we actually believe in the American project, right? I mean, we mm -hmm. are lovers of the Constitution and the Declaration of Independence and, uh, and, and at least the, the best of the founding, right, even though we're willing to critique it. And would you, yeah. say, would you say that's a new phenomenon? Like, if we went back 50 years or so, libertarians could sort of pick, you know, they could fit in in certain ways on either side. But now the way the direction that the Democrat Party or the left or however you want the progressives have gone to where a lot of them seem to not like the American experience, to not appreciate the founding, to want to reject the Constitution. Is this sort of, do you see this as new or because, you know, you go back in time, at least I'm told I'm not that old, but I've been told Democrats used to love all that stuff too. The left used to have an appreciation for all that stuff too. And that's changed now. Is that sort of your take? Or do you think it's always been the way that libertarians are going to just piece better with that kind of the conservative or Republican side of things? 
You know, I think historically it has been more um, of a an alignment between libertarians and conservatives because of the Cold War. And so since they were anti, you know, conservatives may have been anti-communist because it was anti-God or something like that. Libertarians were anti-communist because it was anti-market, but it brought the two together. And so you have some of the most interesting kinds of conversations in groups like Intercollegiate Studies Institute and things like that happening between conservatives and libertarians, where it seemed like with the left, it was more just issue specific, you know, like gay rights or something. You hop Mm -hmm. in on an issue, but there wasn't really a deep philosophical uh, conversation going on as much. Now you're seeing the breakdown of that fusionism. So you're seeing some of those right leaning groups really embrace more of an anti-market, you know, uh, culturally isolationist, anti-globalist, et cetera sort of perspective, and they're kind of scuttling the the classical liberals out of the conversation. Yeah, yeah, so people really are finding themselves politically homeless on both ends, yeah. Okay, great, so I think that sets sets the tone and and gives folks an idea of where you're coming from, so let's get into specifics about the book. And you have a line in the book where you say, we all learned in our eighth grade economics course that prices are generated by supply and demand. And when I read that, it kind of made me chuckle because I was like, not only did I not have an econ class in eighth grade, (laughs) I didn't have one in high school. I never took one until I was in college and then my mind was blown and it ended up being my major. But of course, my first econ class I took in college, I said, why didn't I get this when I was in high school? Do you find that when you are going out and you're shopping around these ideas, that liberalism, classical liberalism, libertarianism in its true form, free markets, real capitalism, not corporatism or some other form of crony capitalism that people call capitalism that's not. Are you able to, do people understand these ideas that you're talking about in the book? Or are there a lot of like laymen out there, everyday folk that simply can't understand the language and they sort of grasp what you're saying? Like I said, I think a lot of people are like me and they never took an econ class. We can't, we might understand that we're better off generally when we're free to trade and buy as we please, but we can't, I think maybe a lot of folks can't, they can't explain that eloquently. They sort of like know it when they see it, they feel it when they feel it. So do you run into that where people just simply can't talk the econ uh, philosophy language or is it not so much of an issue and people are really grasping onto these ideas and and you're able to to sort of change the way people are thinking about capitalism and free markets etc you know i find that people are very receptive i think you can think of it a couple of ways one is that you know if you come down to just the basic level econ 101 we say right econ 101 supply and demand opportunity costs those sorts of concepts it's more, it's very intuitive, actually, when you think about it. It's just a matter of thinking that way, right? Using the economic way of thinking. So usually it's pretty easy for me to explain, well, hey, you know, if you want to push your wages up and you're in a union, a really good way of doing that is to shrink the labor supply, right? Because then people have to pay more to get laborers. And so what are you going to do? You're going to take advantage of anything you can find to shut certain people out of the labor supply and everybody just nods because they understand that, right? Mm -hmm. That makes perfect sense. And you don't have extreme anti-capitalist, you know, I don't know, really ideological Antifa types in most of the audiences that I speak to. And so most people haven't given it a lot of thought before 
But once you're explaining it, they're nodding along without much problem. They're not people who want to blow up our economic system. They may want a thick welfare state or something like that, but they, they're entrepreneurial. They're, they're people, they want to start businesses. They want to be economically successful. And they want to see black people be economically successful in the United States. And so most of the time I get a very, very good response when explaining some of the economic ideas and it's helped. I've even had progressive students express to me how helpful it was for them to understand from me why inequality is required in a capitalist Mm. uh, economy, right? You have to have people who start long-term production processes and those require a lot of upfront capital. And not everybody wants to undertake that risk. That's a huge risk and it's on you if it fails. Some people Mm -hmm. wanna be employees and show up and maybe have a mortgage, but they don't wanna own a business. And so, you know, so the point is, is that even that I've I've seen them go, oh, I get it now, right? We We don't want inequality past a certain point, but some inequality is absolutely required and is fine. And it doesn't, it doesn't mean that anyone's being oppressed. And so that's actually been helpful to them to grasp that point. Okay. Yeah. That's, that's awesome to hear. And so when you say it's um, economic freedom, the freedom to own things, trade them or keep them as you wish and labor where you will, that defines the story of black oppression through exclusion from economic freedoms. Do people sort of ever bucket that Uh, particularly black audience who want to talk about, you know, voting laws, laws against interracial marriage that existed in the past those kinds of that kinds of oppression versus like why are we focusing so much on economic freedom when we don't even when we haven't even historically had some of these other freedoms or is it easy to shift the mindset to to economic to focusing on economic freedom and that being the method by which you you adopt a lot of other freedoms yeah i think it's actually pretty easy to shift over because it's not like i'm denying any of those other things What I'm saying is that we focus too much on those other things to the exclusion of understanding uh, the power of economic liberation. And I think people understand that, especially I really love this point that my co-author makes about the long story of civil rights. He does this in chapter six when we talk about Booker T. Washington and entrepreneurship and property ownership, where what we show is, you know, the group of people who brought the kind of economic clout that was needed to have the lawyers from the NAACP, to have the funding for all of those cases. Those were the people that the National Negro Business League built, right? They built up the businesses of people like Madam C.J. Walker. She gave the NAACP its biggest, largest gift, right? It's, it's one of its founding gifts. And so that's the point. You need people like John H. Johnson, who own huge, popular Black magazines that, are, that can publish the picture of Emmett Till in his, in his uh, coffin, right? Uh, because if you don't have anybody who owns a huge popular magazine, then nobody will publish that picture. And so it's important to understand. So once I get into the connection between the economic power and the civil rights movement, it helps people to just put the two together rather than see them as, as sort of, um, you know, two warring accounts or something like that. Yeah, yeah. And you just mentioned... Um... Booker T, and I was going to get to him a little bit later because he comes a little bit later in the book, but I'll just segue right now to to, to Booker T. You, you talk about how the book talks about how he's been mischaracterized, and it's mentioned that the National Civil Rights Museum unfairly calls him an accommodationist. Why is that unfair, and um, 
what do you think people are missing about Booker T? Yeah, well, to use some Aristotelian language, I would say that Booker T had what we call practical wisdom, uh, phronesis in the Greek, right? He was in the deep south. He was running Tuskegee. There were already people who'd been sent to assassinate him. And he knew that if he was not extremely careful with the way he navigated the situation, they would burn Tuskegee to the ground. And so what I see Washington doing is playing the long game. He understood that the freedom of Black Americans was a long-term project. And he cared about political rights. He was secretly funding a lot of important cases. He was secretly supporting a lot of boycott movements. But he couldn't do that publicly the way that Du Bois could because he was in the North. And so you just have to think about context and use your prudence, right? And so when he made that Atlanta Compromise speech, I really like the way that that uh, we introduced that because he had a friend say to him, you've talked to black audiences in the South. You've talked to black audiences in the North. You've talked to white in the South. You've talked to white in the North. You've never talked to a room full of all those people at the same time. That is a tough nut to crack, right? And so Booker T. Washington had to argue for the economic freedom of blacks in the South. And remember, they couldn't go north for economic freedom because if they did that, he knew at that time in history that they would get into certain industries, those industries would unionize, and they would, quote unquote, push the black man to the wall. So it had to happen in the south. Put your buckets down where you are. And then he said, but we don't have to mix socially. Well, he had to say that, right? Do I know whether or not Booker T. Washington really believed that? I seriously doubt he really believed that for the long-term reality of Black Americans. But you have to, you know, use your wisdom there in a situation like that if you really want to make progress. And Booker T. Washington deserves an incredible amount of praise for what the National Negro Business League was able to accomplish in creating a middle and upper income Black class of people. And that group pushed forward uh, the freedom fight in ways they never could have if they had, if they had not built up those resources. So I really praise Washington for playing the long game and for being smart about the language and the context he was in and just understand that Du Bois was in a totally different context. And so it was a little ridiculous of him, frankly, to criticize Washington in the way that he did, but maybe he felt he had to do that in his context. I don't know. Um, but yeah, that's sort of the account we give in, in defending Washington. And actually kind of drawing a parallel to today, it sounds like you actually don't have much issue with people saying, hey, you're a white lady talking about black liberation. Be quiet. You're, you're, it sounds like you're actually, you know, you're, your audiences are very receptive. I'm assuming whether they're black, white or otherwise. Yeah, and absolutely. we are and we are and that's wonderful to hear. I love it. And and at Free Black Thought, we promote the idea, the theory of racelessness quite a bit. And so we actually have I've had people, people I'm related to, people who are just fans of Free Black Thought say, well, like, why is it free black thought? Why isn't it just free thought? If you're trying to, you know, move towards racelessness, if we're trying to talk, treat everybody based on their common humanity, why the, why the black stuff still? You know, sometimes my response might be kind of like echoing at a much smaller level, Booker T in that getting to human nature and that sort of thing. Sometimes in order for a black person or an Asian person or whatever person to change their mind to adopt a new philosophy, they need to hear it or see it come from someone that they think they at least perceive to be who looks like them, who has a similar background as them, 
that sort of thing. And now I'm hearing your story about how you're having, you know, you're not having really that issue at all. Am I sort of caught in the past still? Is, Is free black thought ready to move to just be free thought, like in your experience? Or do we still need to sort of be playing this long game and where we need to be, we need to understand that sometimes black people just need to hear it from another black person. Sometimes Asian people need to hear it from another Asian person, et cetera. And one day we'll get to the point where a good idea is a good idea is a good idea. What do you think? I actually don't use the term black to refer to the race, black people. So this is very important distinction. I actually make this in a lot of my articles. Um, I'm talking about black American culture. Mm-hmm. And so I'm not talking about someone with black skin. There's people with black skin all over the world, right? Who have nothing yeah. to do with black American culture. I'm talking about a, a you know, culture is tends to be geographic, right? And if you have a bunch of people in the Southeast of the United States, if they are Southern, really in many ways, but then also they are Southern Americans, but then they are also excluded and separated from white Southern Americans, they are going to develop their own cultural traditions. And indeed they did, right? And that's one of the reasons why I have a whole chapter on the black church, Uh, because Lincoln and Mamiya call the black church, the cultural womb of black America. And so much comes out of that tradition. And so what I'm finding is black people are listening to me, not, you know, when I present on this, I'm getting a good reaction from black people not because whether I'm black or white, right? It has to do with the fact that I am engaging with black American culture deeply. And they are recognizing that I actually know something about what it is to be a black American as opposed to just someone with black skin. And so it's really not about race. It, it's race is what made things go the way they did historically, mm-hmm. the invention of race, right? Um, but now that that's happened, what we're dealing with is just real instantiated cultures. And so I always say to people as an example, I'll say, if I say uh, black preaching, you know what I mean, yeah. right? If I say black music, you know what I mean, right? You know what I'm referring to. If I say white preaching, what does that mean? I don't know because white people are scattered all over the United States, Right. They don't have one share. There's Puritan, you know, there's the Puritan tradition in the Northeast, which is one way of being white, I guess you could say. That's <laughs> totally different from how you might find a Midwesterner to be or a West, you know, right. a Californian to be. And so are there cultural traditions in the different regions of the United States? Yes, but there's no white culture. There's a white legal category that existed for some period of time but there is no white culture. For instance, when you get these whiteness lists where they talk about, you know, being on time as part of white culture, that is not white. That is Puritan. Okay. Southerners in general are less on time than Puritans because it's an agricultural tradition. Duh. You know, it's different Mm -hmm. from a factory tradition, you know, an industrial tradition. So, so it's just not being careful enough with our categories. I think there. So, yeah. so I'm very interested in the idea of racelessness, but I just don't want to erase the genuine cultural traditions that exist. Yeah, yeah, that's a great way to put it and great, great insights there. And speaking of Black people around the world and, and one of the most, what I found to be one of the most interesting parts of the book was the, the portion that talked about the effect that the slave trade had on Africa, the continent. The book talks about how after escaping the bonds of colonialism, African countries adopted disastrous socialist policies 
because there was kind of this association with all this pain and oppression with capitalism. So we want to get away from that. That destroyed us. So we're going to adopt these socialist policies that also destroyed us or turned out to destroy us. I'm actually interested in kind of where the moral burden, where do you think the moral burden falls? Do you think the former former colonizers are to blame for African countries adopting the disastrous socialist policies? I mean, there's obviously a link there. There's a historical link in like human nature and how, because a lot of the decolonization voices still want to adopt socialist policies despite, despite the evidence that it hasn't gone so well. When it comes to the way that African countries are governing themselves now, whether they're still it, it's still a kind of a reaction to that the atrocities of the past or not, where does the where does the moral burden or, or blame fall now? Yeah, I mean, I actually think it, it weirdly, <laughs> it, I I feel like you could blame the anti-colonial European thinkers because many of these African leaders went to Europe to be educated. And it was the anti-colonial thinkers, uh, philosophers that they were reading who were socialists, right? And who were the ones who were mixing together the idea of capitalism and colonialism, even though there, there is nothing about capitalism that requires colonialism. They happen to, you know, things happen to be happening at the same time, but, but actually not really, right? Capitalism really takes off around 1800. Colonialism is several hundred years earlier than that. Uh, I should say European colonialism. Of course, globally, colonialism is thousands and tens of thousands of years old, and it's always been going on. And it had nothing, there was no capitalism in any meaningful sense of the term occurring then. So it's a sloppy, corrupt ideology that got fed to the nascent African leaders. And so it was uh, other bad European ideas, I guess, that you can blame. <laughs> Although, of course, you know, people are responsible for, for believing them and adopting them. But yeah, I mean, I, so, so weirdly, you can still blame the Europeans, but not the colonialists, the anti-colonialists, I guess yeah. you could say. Yeah, that's, that's really interesting. And what do you think about it's colonization and decolonization? Those are, those are very hot terms right now with everything going on in Israel. You, with your, with your background that, that you have and sort of thinking about what what you just said, the link between or not link between colonization and capitalism, et cetera, et cetera. Where do you think, and actually your book talks about too, <laughs> how um, the black black people historically, they resonated strongly with the, the Hebrew struggle with the Israelites. And uh, as I was kind of going over my notes and thinking about the current events, I was just like, wow, so much of this is actually really applicable to what we're talking, everybody's talking and thinking about right now with everything going on in Israel, with Gaza and Palestine. What are your thoughts on the rhetoric around the colonization conversations? Do you, is, it, is it just more of what you just said, that people are falsely equating colonization with capitalism, and that's just a big mistake? They are not inherently linked? Or do you think there's some truth to what, to the way people are, are, are linking them even in the United, not even just in Israel. We don't have to get into what, what do you think about Israel? I'm not trying to do that. People are talking about, well, we need to decolonize in the United States too. And, and then you hear them start talking about down with capitalism. And it's like, well, if you decolonize, if the Native Americans suddenly took over and now they're in charge and there's no, nobody else, are they not going to, they're not going to want to have free trade and that sort of thing. 
what are just some of the things that you're thinking about as you're seeing this term colonization and decolonization come up and up and up and up and up? Yeah, yeah, great question. You know, the first thing I try to do when I engage with the left is I always try to find if there is a kernel of truth to anything that's being said. Because what I find is that post the post-enlightenment mind has this problem. And if you're interested in more of this, there's a blog on on uh, blog post on my blog called The Problem of Ideology. Uh, and you can see me go into this more deeply. But the, the problem of the post-enlightenment mind is that it's a totalizing mind. And so what we often do is we find some kernel of insight, and sometimes it's quite real. And then we turn it into uh, the theory of everything, right? The lens through which we see everything, and we want to formalize it in law. And, you know, we immediately go to just totalizing the concept. So let's take the concept of decolonization. There's a kernel of truth here. So for instance, some of the most astounding black leaders and thinkers and some of the best heterodox sort of thinkers like TRM Howard, like Zora Neale Hurston, came from Freedman's towns. They came from towns where everything was done by black people. Zora Neale Hurston's dad was the mayor, right? And what does that mean? That means that there was a level of self-esteem in these people's lives that I think genuinely was a major struggle for black people who were experiencing being oppressed by whites directly every day, right? Being shut out of a store or being spat on or uh, arrested for something trivial or whatever it might be, right? Just that, that, that constant sort of um, breaking you down. And so to say, I want to have a decolonized mind or something like that, there can be something true about that, right? I want to, I want to have a mind that is not affected by this other group's idea of me. Okay, and I think, wow, I actually sort of saw that. I saw that in my research, where people who were shaped really by their own experience and not by the white experience staring at their experience, um, they really did have a power to them, you know, that was very real. So that's a kernel of an idea. Great, good idea. And it's, there's a lot of ideas like that, like representation. You just mentioned it, right? Maybe you do need to hear an idea from somebody who looks like you. I had a, a Latino student uh, in our school who struggled really badly with a couple of things that occurred. And we had a Latino pastor who's, you know, I go to a Lutheran, uh, I'm at a Lutheran institution, Mexica, Mexican Lutheran pastor who came and made amends to her. And it meant a lot because it was coming from him. It made a difference that it was coming from him. That's a real human thing that actually matters, right? Like when I became a uh, a member of the uh, the uh, department, the original philosophy department I was in, we started to see an uptick in female students. You know, they felt more comfortable in the philosophy department because I was there, okay? And so that those are real things. That doesn't mean we need to start having percentages of required numbers of people, right? These are organic things. Let them happen organically. Keep them in mind and balance with other issues. That's not one thing. Right. It's not one thing that has to take over our whole account. And so I think when we look at the kernel of truth with decolonization, it has to be balanced with the fact that the English system of law has been an absolute boon wherever it has existed on the earth, whether you're in Singapore or Hong Kong or wherever you go. People who have adopted the English system of law have flourished. It's, it's just a wonderful thing to have equality before the law, to have private property rights, to have freedom of contract. 
cultures have things that they have to offer and that's what the English had to offer. And, and other cultures have other things to offer. Don't go to England for food. It's gross. Okay. <laughs> go somewhere else for food, right? You want good music? Go to Black America. They've got all the good music, okay? So everybody's got something to offer, but that legal system has been absolutely wonderful. And there's nothing wrong with saying we're culturally appropriating that. <laughs> we're yes. taking that, we're adopting that, and we're benefiting from that. And we can enjoy other things about our culture, but but benefit from that particular tradition. Mm-hmm. And I got to say, I recognize that, 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 that human desire to, to see someone who looks like you or to have that representation. But for me personally, it is, I grew up in a super white area. My dad was one of the only black men around period, let alone professional black men. And it never affected, I never felt like I needed someone to look like me to be successful. I would graduated at the top of my class, did all kinds of great things and went on to be a normal, you know, balanced person, I think. And so for me personally, I've never really understood it, but I recognize, well, other people seem to have, this seems to be important to a lot of other people. So I'm not going to ignore it. I'm not just going to say, well, because I'm not that way, you have to be that way also. But it's something that I don't, like, from my own personal experience, I don't even quite understand it. Just to, that's not a question for you. I'm just putting a little nugget out there for, for our audience and, and just me sort of thinking through things. I, you, can, you can recognize that something is true about human nature, even if it doesn't apply to your personal nature, I guess. Yeah. That's kind of what I'm trying to say. I, I can relate to you because that's how I am about gender. You know, I grew up with an extremely strong mother. A female in my life who, you know, was the only female engineering student at Duke in 1960 and things like that. And so when I've experienced weird things at work, you know, people will say, it's because you're a woman or something like that. And I'll say, no, that person's just dysfunctional. It's like, I can't, I can't relate to the idea that, you know, it's because I'm being oppressed somehow. Um, it, maybe it's true. I don't know, but I don't see it, you know? And so I think it, de- it does depend on your background experience. And so I think somebody who maybe did have a different kind of experience where they were put down as being a female, you can't do this or you can't do that or something. To them, it might be extremely important to have a female mentor because all of a sudden, you know, they feel empowered where for me, it didn't matter whether my mentors were female or male at all. It just made absolutely no difference to me. And so, yeah, I think it's just a matter of human experience. Once again, we're embodied beings, you know, not everything is pure reason, right? Some things are just deep in our in our souls and psychological. Yeah. You, you, you know, as you said, you focus quite a bit on the black church and its role in black liberation and how it's kind of that cultural engine. And this might surprise somebody who picks up your book to read it. And they're expecting more of a separation of church and state type of libertarian ethic. And they're like, there's a lot of stuff about the church in here. And, and you've touched on this a little bit, but I'd like to explore it more. If you have any more thoughts on it, why you write extensively about not just economic liberation, but the spiritual liberation. That's how I see not just the cultural engine that the church, the black church is, but the spiritual liberation that's sort of required in your view. And I I would say that I share that view that is married to economic freedom and liberation. Yeah. Well, from a purely classical liberal perspective, it's just really important to talk about civil society. And so it's too easy. And this is something I really push back on a lot of contemporary libertarians on libertarianism, the movement from classical liberalism to libertarianism, I think has made the philosophy thinner and thinner and thinner uh, over time. 
where it's just like the non-aggression principle solves every problem or something like that, right? And it's like, guys, the non-aggression principle is a nice place to start when you're talking about law or when you're talking about political philosophy, but classical liberalism is not just about that, right? It's about how life can work when you govern yourself rather than being governed by the state. And if I'm not going to be governed by the state, I have to create my own institution. Right. And so we want to talk about civil society, all of the voluntary institutions, whether that's family, church, bowling club, AA, you know, whatever, the, the community garden, whatever it is, those are all really, the, once again, that's the stuff of life, right? Not my relationship with the municipal government. The hope is that I don't have to think about the municipal government very much. And I spend most of my life in the realm of civil society. So, so one of the biggest reasons for having that chapter was to say, classical liberals affirm and also want to, in every possible way, encourage the healthy growth of, of civil society. But I think more specifically in the Black American case, there's a wonderful, very specific historical story there to be told. And I did, I will admit, I did want to address this idea of the white man's religion. I wanted to make sure that people understood that when uh, enslaved Black people used the phrase white man's religion, they were not referring to Christianity. They were referring to the slaveholders' way of practicing Christianity. And they very much thought of themselves as the true Christians who really understood the gospel and really understood who Jesus was, and that the slaveholders were just manipulating the Bible and, and, you know, picking out, you look at the plantation missionaries and some of them, you know, they have the master staring at them the whole time they give the sermon and they could only talk about not, not stealing and obeying your master. They weren't talking about, uh, you know, Jesus who had no place to lay his head and who gave everything for you so that you could be with him for eternity. They weren't talking about those things. And so what Black Amer what enslaved Black Americans did is they went off in the middle of the night and worshiped on their own, right? And oftentimes were persecuted by their own masters uh, for the more evangelical form of Christianity that they were practicing. And so it's just an important distinction. Of course, the, the distinction that Frederick Douglass makes in that famous appendix, where he talks about the evil cradle robbing, you know, Christianity, which is nothing like the true Christianity of Christ in the Bible. And so I think what's happened over time is you have some black elites using the term white man's religion in a much broader way to sort of just smear Christianity in general. And I'm thinking, uh, do you, are you sure you want to get rid of this tradition? Because the black enslaved Americans who took advantage the moment that they were able to do so of freedom were inspired by the Exodus story. They were inspired by the doctrine of Imago Dei. It was their understanding of themselves as precious to God and people whose destiny was to be free that caused them to do that, right? There's plenty of people who have been enslaved throughout the entire history of the world, and they did not jump on that opportunity for freedom the way that Black Americans did and saw themselves as joining uh, the United States in its own claimed uh, dream of freedom for all men. And so, uh, you know, so I think it's really important to embrace that and understand it and understand that distinction. And so that's that's a, a big part of why we talk about it as well. And I love, I got to just say, I love that that chapter. I was like, high, you know, taking notes. I mean, that the book, the, the whole book's great, but it's worth it just for that chapter alone. Oh, and I get you. chills, you know, reading some of the, the stories of slaves being persecuted and 
not backing down and just what a fool you must feel if you're that slave master, like you said, espousing to be a Christian. And then here's the example right in front of you. That is just a wonderful, wonderful part of that book and very inspirational and humbling <laughs> as a believer myself. Yes. Just, just thank you so much for writing that. And did you, did you, would, would that have been something that would have been in the book? It like, because you and Marcus don't come from that same background. Was that something that you were just kind of on your own fleshing out or was, did he play a, a role in that? No, that was really my chapter. I, I actually wrote most of the book. Uh, Marcus wrote chapters four and six. So those deep dives, both into atrocities and into entrepreneurship, uh, and then worked with me on editing the rest. And he did help me keep the Black Church chapter under control because I just wanted to go on and on and on, you know. And once I got into doctrinal stuff, he's like, Rachel, you're going to lose people, you know. And so I tried to, to majorly shorten that. But it was, so that was totally my chapter. But it was interesting to see how, how exciting it was for Marcus actually to, to learn that part and, and to um, affirm that as well, you know, as a classical liberal who does affirm people's civil society institutions, whether or not you're a part of them. And so, um, yeah, that's been a lot of fun. And I actually was quite shocked by the amount of interest that that chapter got. I've been asked to come and speak purely on the black church um, in various places. And I thought, well, there's people with a lot more expertise than me, but it is helpful to, uh, contextualize it in that fight for full citizenship. And so, um, yeah, it's been absolutely wonderful. Writing that chapter was one of the most precious parts of writing the book for me. Well, I certainly wouldn't mind if you ever had the inspiration to turn that chapter into full-on book itself. I think uh, that would be, if there's more to say, you know, if you had to edit that chapter down a lot, you have a lot more to say on it. I certainly would pick that book up if you ever do turn okay, it Okay, I'll think about book. that. <laughs> yeah. And then we'll have you back on the podcast just to talk exclusively about that. But we're creeping up on an hour here. So I think I'm going to about to hit you with our, our 10 speed round questions. These are just, actually, you got a lot of more. I have a list, like a laundry list of, of questions. There's about 45, 50 questions. And then I literally have a random number generator. And that's how I pick the questions for everybody. So it's not biased in any way like oh I need to make sure I ask this quick question to but it's funny how often people get questions that actually do sort of apply to what they're talking about I feel like you actually did get a heavy hand like more of the serious serious questions they're all kind of fun but the goal is just for you to to, to spit out what comes to your mind first when you hear the question and then after this we'll give you a chance to put out your final thoughts anything else that you didn't touch on that you were hoping I would ask you about maybe about the book that I didn't Anything else that you want to get off your chest before we close it out? But are you ready for your, your 10 speed run questions? Can I say one more thing about the black church before we start? Yes, please. I just, okay. I just wanted to say, I think a really important reason to talk about the black church is to understand black American culture and the reason that black Americans don't fit well in either party or don't really fit well on the left or right because you have a social conservatism coming out of the biblical tradition, you know, things like gender and sexuality, mm -hmm. um, right? Even though you have also this tradition of social liberation, obviously for very practical reasons uh, in the black tradition. And I say that because you have a lot of black elites and I mean, academic elites who sort of pretend to speak for black Americans uh, you know, for instance, in the Israel-Palestine conflict or on issues of transgenderism and things like that. And they really don't. They don't represent that group well. Um, they're, they're not representative. 
they're part of an elite leftist movement. They're not really representative of Black Americans as a whole because they're not part of the church. And so I just want to throw that out there because it complicates things in really interesting ways. And it helps us to see how complicated really the, the political story of Black Americans has been. That's all I'll say. Okay. <laughs> yes, yes. Awesome. Thank you for, for adding that. Okay. Jordan or LeBron? Oh, uh, well, I'm not a sports person, but I guess I'll say Jordan since I'm 46 years old. <laughs> <laughs> Where is there systemic racism in America today? Oh, um, I'll adopt the language of my friend JT, uh, civil righteousness, head of civil righteousness, uh, the nephew of Nina Simone, a uh, great uh, preacher and, and leader. He says we have a racial hangover. So I like that language better than systemic racism because, of course, we have had systemic racism. In other words, racism built into our laws and our institutions. And now what we're dealing with is the outworking of that. So we've changed the laws mostly. Maybe there's still distinctions between crack and cocaine or something, you know, right? Punishments and mm -hmm. things like that that are still left over. But mostly we're dealing with the outworking of that, right? And, and sort of working that out of our, um, out of our system historically. And that's going to take time. Black History Month, yay or nay? Yay, but talk about entrepreneurs, not just politicians. <laughs> okay. Is Rachel Dolezal a bad person or just misunderstood? Oh, I, I think she's probably mentally ill. Uh, so neither. Okay. Or, or I, I guess you could say misunderstood, but I, I, I don't think she's, I think she's mentally ill. What is a movie that you really liked that everybody else hated? A movie I liked that everybody else hated? Yeah, a movie that, that, generally speaking, people didn't like it. You just didn't understand. You thought it was great. I mean, there's probably, it probably depends on the people. You know, like, I love Brazil by uh, Terry Gilliam, you know, who was the Monty Python, the one American in Monty Python. And it's all about, it's very weird and experimental. So there's probably a lot of people who wouldn't like the movie, but to me, it's the most hilarious send-up of bureaucracy, of government bureaucracy that's ever been done. Uh, and so some of the more experimental things are probably pretty off-putting for most people, but maybe not for film aficionados or something. And then this is another film, film question. The Black Panther or Blade? I've never seen Blade. Um, but I did enjoy the Black Panther and notice that the ending was free trade. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Opening yeah. of borders yeah. and free trade, just saying. Mm -hmm. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> Do you think that BET serves a worthwhile purpose today? Black entertainment. Um, oh, sure, sure, sure. Yeah, no, this, this goes into arguments that I've made in articles on why I don't reject things like like Juneteenth or by Black Day or things like that, because I do see how uh, you can have a group economy sort of effort in order to push into something that it was hard to break into, uh, you know, uh, before. And so it's a way to use your group power in order to break in. And I think that's totally fine. There, like I said, there is a Black American culture. And so that's a genuine um, tradition, you know, that can come together and, and, and uh, be entrepreneurial. Okay, I laughed when this next question came up. I was like, this is a great question for Rachel. Should the United States return to the gold standard? Oh, <laughs> um, I think not. I, I will say that um, 
Uh, monetary policy is the one sort of libertarian thing that I never really super got into. Uh, my my co-author is an expert on it, actually, and so he'd be the person to ask. But I think that um, some libertarians can be a little overzealous when it comes to these things, and there are ways to have more reasonable monetary policy without going back on the gold standard, which I think would cause crazy contractions or something like that and end up end up being a bit of a disaster. But um, but I am but I am familiar with why we're concerned about monetary policy. And uh, and so the idea would be to to reel in the um, ability of the Fed to do quite as much as it does. Um, But no, I wouldn't go back on the gold standard. Okay, fair enough. What is a conspiracy theory that you low key believe is true? Well, I was informed recently, um, and I, I would like to see the evidence more deeply, but I'm, I'm open to it, that actually the claim that um, the feds were involved in getting drugs into the inner cities, getting crack into the inner cities, has some legs, apparently, that there, there's actually some reality to that, which I just sort of assumed was a conspiracy theory. But um, I have some, some very trustworthy people saying, oh, there's actually some evidence. And so... I'd actually like to look into that more deeply, but I'm, I'm open because, you know, we do have things like Mississippi appendectomies, you know, like uh, Fannie Lou Hamer underwent, you know, and many Native American women underwent. We do have the Tuskegee medical experiment. Those things really happen. And so I am very much against the conspiracy theory mindset. I think there are real nuttiness going on, um, but you have to just be you have to be um, distinguishing, right? Um, so you have to be able to say, look, if there's some real evidence for it, um, sometimes focused things like that really did occur, as opposed to saying, um, well, because I'm anti, anti-government, anti I assume that it's all true. No, the government isn't that organized, right? So a lot of the stuff that they say, oh, there's an Illuminati running around, you know, it's actually very hard to run things uh, in a centrally planned way. And so I mostly don't believe conspiracy theories, but focused ones sometimes, if you've got evidence, I'm listening. What is the best part of waking up? The best part of waking up, I'm still alive. No, (laughs) actually, I I would say... um, I live in a 1926 house in St. Louis, and over the years, I've fixed it up to be historical, back to its historical uh, roots. And I really do love waking up to my beautiful home. I really do. Yeah, awesome. Okay, well, those were your 10 questions. Uh, What what more do you have to, to leave with our audience before we sign off here? Well, one topic that I always like to talk about is one of the solutions I discussed in the book, which is neighborhood stabilization. Um, It's an important sort of uh, rethinking of the way we do charity, the way we do philanthropy uh, for those people who are stuck in poverty. And I'll tell you what, there's uh, disproportionate numbers of black Americans stuck in poverty, but there are three times as many poor white people as black people. So we have a lot of people to be concerned about black or white uh, or Latino or whatever when it comes to poverty. And so take a look at that. Um, But if you're interested in hearing just an amazing, compelling account of how really great philanthropic work can be done that's long-term transformative, please pick up my friend Lucas's book, When the Sirens Stop. When the Sirens Stop, which is his work on Enright Boulevard here in St. Louis, which is one of the toughest areas in North City. And uh, I think it's just really important that once again, affirming civil society, that we think about how we're gonna do these things ourselves. Because if we don't wanna rely on the state to do it, 
then we need to do it right on the ground. And so uh, please consider reading his book. It's absolutely excellent. Well, Rachel, thank you so much for coming on. I feel like my IQ rose while we were talking and even you're just such a kind person to even just recommend someone else's book as your final thought is just, that's not as common as you might think. People usually just want to promote themselves and you're recommending somebody else's work. So thank you for being such a light. I hope people who haven't heard of you and are exposed to you through this podcast will start to follow you, read your stuff, read, pick up the book, uh, Black Liberation Through the Marketplace, Hope Heartbreak and the Promise of America. Thanks so much for coming on. Thank you, Connie. I had a great time. You're listening to the Free Black Thought Podcast.